From Washington, D.C., this is the Korean American Perspectives, a new podcast presented to you by the Council of Korean Americans. Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast, where we explore the triumphs and challenges of the Korean American experience and examine different sides of complex issues that shape our community. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to another episode of the Korean American Perspectives. My name is Abraham Kim, Executive Director of CKA, and I'm here with my co-host, Jessica Lee. How are you doing, Jessica? Good. Thanks, Abe. We have an, another exciting episode uh, talking with Dr. David Kim. He's the Associate Clinical Professor at UCLA and at Cedar sinai Medical Group. Uh, and Bennett Kim, he's the Managing Principal of Big Rock Partners and Chief Executive Officer at Sunbay Senior Club. I'm particularly uh, interested in this episode because the power of interdisciplinary thinking. When when two people, two Korean Americans, had a great idea, they had a conversation about a problem in their community, the Korean American community, to be specific. And as a result of this conversation, uh, Bennett went on to help start uh, the Sunbay Senior Club, which I believe opened last month in June. Uh, but this interview uh, was actually with Jessica and the, these two gentlemen uh, back in April. And it's really a fascinating conversation about how uh, two very important and bright individuals who are trying to solve a problem, solve a problem, and had this conversation and went on to find a solution uh, for senior care. So I'll turn it over to you, Jess. Well, thanks, Abe. I think this is, you know, a really important way for our community to see that there are so many things uh, that we can do as individuals. I mean, David Kim, of course, is an OBGYN and a medical doctor and happened to know Bennett um, and uh, had shared this uh, concern that he had, you know, about middle income uh, elderly uh, Korean American seniors who are going to have a really tough time finding affordable and and fun and and um, you know, innovative, um, you know, setting for them to spend time with friends. And so Bennett being a, uh, an expert in the real estate space really ran with this idea and, uh, culminated in the creation of Sunbay Senior Club, which, uh, as Abe noted, just opened last month. And so, uh, there's a lot that we, uh, we will be, uh, talking about in this episode, uh, not just on, on senior care and housing, but also how Dr. Kim, uh, as a medical professional uh, helped found a community organization called Korean American Health Coalition that really addresses the education gap and the knowledge gap uh, within our community on the resources that are available. So I hope you enjoy this episode and uh, we'll go right into the interview now. My name is Jessica Lee, and this is Korean American Perspectives, a new podcast series by Council of Korean Americans, where we meet interesting Korean Americans who are doing interesting, innovative things in our community, as well as dive into some issues of the day. So today, I am joined by Dr. David Kim and Bennett Kim. Dr. David Kim is an associate clinical professor at UCLA and Cedar sinai Medical Group. He's also the founder of Korean American Health Coalition, which we will talk about uh, during this episode. Bennett Kim is managing principal at Big Rock Partners, 
and also the Chief Executive Officer of Sun Bay Senior Club. So thank you, David and Bennett, for joining. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Jessica, for inviting us. Absolutely. It's great to be here with you in L.A. So, um, David, maybe we can start with you. So, obviously, as a CK member, you've seen, you know, the ways in which uh, Korean-American community uh, have uh, become more civically engaged and interested in, in national issues, which uh, is, is a positive thing. Uh, but something that, you know, I think we haven't really done good enough of a job is to educate ourselves around health care issues, health policy. Um, and so would love for you to, you know, would love to hear from you, David, on, you know, how, why you decided to found a Korean American Health Coalition and, you know, maybe set the stage for um, health uh, equity issues that affects us here in L.A. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for that question. Uh, about 10 years ago, yeah, 2010, I moved here from Hawaii. I was working at University of Hawaii and I, when I moved here, I thought, well, there's so many Koreans here. There must be organizations taking care of healthcare issues because healthcare disparities, at least I think amongst Korean health professionals, were kind of aware of the, the disparities that exist. Um, and then when I arrived here, I talked to different groups, and but no one was really working on it. Even the physician professional groups, they were more of professional organizations that were about uh, networking amongst themselves. And when I approached a lot of different type of Asian American or Korean American nonprofits, they just said, well, we don't really, we don't really do healthcare. Now there are certain nonprofit healthcare delivery organizations, and I think they do a really good job focused on what they're trying to do. But um, I just didn't see someone tying all the community groups together because to make real change, I think you really need to have a platform where the community is united. And I used to wonder, because when I was in an academic uh, medicine for most of my time up until recently, and um, I always wondered, wow, look at the Latino organizations, African-American communities, uh, the healthcare delivery is pretty good. There's a good system in place. And I just thought, why are we so unorganized? Why don't we have things together? And then I forgot who it was, but someone pointed out to me, well, it didn't just happen. It was federal government, state, local governments that put funding in, that developed the systems, that developed the catchment areas, that actually have social workers that reach out. And we just have none of that because we are just a small percentage of the population. So I thought in LA though, that would be different because you know we're, we, have a, we have a more noticeable presence here. Uh, but then I just realized we didn't. I think the healthcare professionals are so busy seeing patients and they're not used to providing any kind of organizational leadership. So I sort of did out of necessity. I was president of the Korean American Graduate Medical Association, which is one of two Korean American physician associations. And as president, I started up the first um, uh, Korean American health conference for the community. And, and as I did that, I started the coalition partly as a way to have a continuing platform and to get all these different nonprofit groups that were interested in healthcare together to support the conference. Um, I kept the platform and the organization going because, you know, I was only going to be president for two years. And so I wanted to still be able to put on the conference still be able to, you know, our mission was basically, it still is, is to make a measurable um, improvement in healthcare outcomes in Korean Americans. So that was the main reason. That's, that's exciting. I mean, I, I have to say, you know, many CK members uh, are either medical professionals themselves or, uh, you know, are otherwise being very close attention to what's going on, you know, in conversations, whether it's on a former Affordable Care Act uh, or things that are happening more locally in their cities. And, you know, this is, um, you know, an issue where, as you said, unless there is some sort of external pressure from communities, the government simply will not be 
willing right. <laughs> to allocate the resources needed. And so I think the role that you're playing and the institution that you're setting up through the um, through the coalition is vital uh, and, you know, has always been the missing piece. Well, you know, it's, and it's not even uh, them being pushed. It's interesting when I brought up some of these issues with different public officials, uh, they just said, oh, we had no idea. That's a great idea. I think Education. we should be right. So I think from, you know, I, I used to think in a sort of accusatory way, like our community is not being helped. And this, but then as I investigate a little bit more, at least in Los Angeles, they just weren't aware of it. And just, you know, I think the Korean community and Asian American community in general, um, they don't put a lot of demands on the, on the public funds, on the you know, elected officials for some sort of results. It's just, just not something that culturally, traditionally that we do. Um, but as soon as I bring up some of these issues, a lot of them are, are actually very eager to partner up with us. And so I think they're used to partnering up with individual groups, nonprofit groups that deliver services to certain parts of the population. But that's very different than some sort of strategic, systematic way of, of looking at healthcare from the approach of a community. No, I think that's fair. And having been on the receiving end of some of the, you know, uh, community outreach, you know, initiatives when I was working on Capitol Hill, I think uh, that's exactly right. It's not so much that you're pressuring them uh, and threatening them, but you're educating them and giving tools, even as simple as a one pager with key data points that they can use in speeches or op-ed. So I think that's right. And, and that's certainly a role that nonprofit organizations can play. So Bennett, I want to uh, turn over to you and, and hear a little bit more about um, you know, how you got started. Um, there's a lot that I want to get into uh, regarding, um, I think, uh, what may have become your passion about uh, providing senior housing and thinking more innovatively about uh, housing in general. But um, can you kind of introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today? Sure. Um, <laughs> let me see. So where do I begin? I, I, I've done real estate my entire life. Uh, started uh, even in college and worked for various real estate groups, um, either doing development or investments, uh, Disney, Merrill Lynch, Oak Tree, um, Apollo. And then in 2006, uh, my boss, who was from Apollo at that time, uh, we decided to uh, split off and form our own investment fund. And we had been doing everything at that point. We had been doing office, retail, hotels, apartments, pretty much every type of real estate there is. And after the financial crisis, well, our, our money partner actually went down for other reasons. And so we actually needed to reinvent ourselves. We couldn't do the same things anymore. Um, it was a different time and fundraising was very challenging. So we decided we looked at our track record and the thing that performed the best. And we look, were looking at the demographic trends and the things that were the most opportunistic would be senior housing. So around 2000, I want to say like 2010, we decided to only focus on senior housing at that point. Um, and we started doing deals um, in Florida where uh, my partner was uh, living at that time. And since then, we've been doing um, a, a bunch of big uh, real, uh, excuse me, senior housing uh, developments that consist of um, different levels of acuity within um, the, the senior spectrum. So independent living, assisted living, and memory care primarily. So something that stood out to me as I was doing research for this interview was your uh, involvement, and, and, and I think you, you've really been a driving force in um, 
what will soon become Koreatown's first premium all-day senior club. And so uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you decided to uh, start Sunbay Senior Club and what, what that means to you. So it was actually David's idea. Oh. Yeah. And I, I actually, I, I love telling the story because <laughs> I, I, I say that um, David came to me and said, hey, I, I have an idea because he knew that I was doing senior housing. Gotcha. And whenever friends come to me with different ideas, I'm usually dismissive. And I'm like, oh, what does David know? He's only a doctor. Doctors don't know anything. Um, but he actually had a really good idea. He said, okay, what about um, not necessarily going big, not buying anything or building anything, but just leasing space and taking care of seniors during the day. And I actually found that uh, pretty, pretty intriguing because... I've been going to senior housing conferences for the past 10, 15 years, and every year they say the same thing. They say the wealthy are fine because they have the money. Um, and then there are solutions for low-income seniors. It's the middle income, um, and it, it's the middle income that's really going to get screwed over the next 20 to 30 years just because it's just becoming so unaffordable. And so when David came up with this idea, I was like, you mean – daycare? <laughs> it sounds kind of simple, but I need to look into it. And so I started Googling things and, and found out that there was a national uh, association and a conference for this kind of stuff called NATSA, National Adult Day Service Association. And it was in Indianapolis. And I decided to go that year. And um, I just saw how fragmented the industry was. And um, it was, uh, there were no large companies that was that was focusing on this and is primarily driven by nonprofit organizations. Um, and the average operating margins were negative. So people were just kind of stumbling through this, trying to figure out how to make this work. So um, David and I kept on talking and we f figured that there was a huge opportunity here to do things the right way mm -hmm. and to scale things appropriately. Right. And so, how, David, feel free to chime mm -hmm. in. I, I'm sorry, I neglected no, your no, pivotal role no, no, not at all. <laughs> in thinking about this. But it was, you know, I think in reading the Korean Senior Care Resource Guide for this year, the LA edition, you know, it's really clear that the adult day programs and senior housing, I mean, these are all things that people probably don't know where to find more information about. So to right. kind of pull it together and make it accessible, I think is is a tremendous contribution in of itself. But kind of sticking to this idea of, of, of the senior club and kind of senior housing more broadly, what, what is your sense of, of you know, since you, since you conceived the idea, where are we today? I, you know, I, I think I did it from a personal perspective of just the idea of how do I take care of my mom in the future. Right. And uh, when I looked at, um, the, we talked about this earlier, that just sort of the generational difference makes it difficult because a lot of what is set up is not really set up for Korean Americans, socially, um, or culturally sensitive uh, sorts of services, even though we're in Koreatown. So while there were some of these services available, like Bennett was saying, they were more for uh, people who are, um, you know, very low level socioeconomic or very um, wealthy, although the wealthy is not for the Korean Americans, they're kind of set up outside of Koreatown. So I was just interested in how do I mean, we have so many, the baby boomers are all retiring. How do we as a community and just as a society take care of all these people who are going to need some sort of services? And I was thinking actually not medical services as much as 
um, kind of socialization and community and when they can't drive, but you can't leave them at home because you're afraid they might burn the house down. You know, how do we create some sort of community environment that might be outside of church, which is very big in the Korean community, and um, that's outside of the people who are, let's say, healthy enough to go to country clubs golfing. So it's, it's not necessarily that population that we're looking at. So these were just different ideas I had and what we were throwing around. And then when I looked into it, uh, Bennett like is an expert at all this. That's why I was speaking to him. He's the one that educated me quite a bit on this. But when I just looked into all this, it just, when an initial, anyone who looks at this, there's just not very many options out there. Mm -hmm. Usually when all of a sudden you really need to take care of it or do it, there's no resource guide. There's nothing to help you with it. Um, And you'd be surprised a lot of these uh, adult senior daycare programs um, they don't really have websites. They don't have, there's not, you know, you know, it's funny when I went to some of them, they weren't even interested in helping me. And I, I said, why aren't you interested in helping me? They said, oh, we, you can't get in anyway, because there's such a long wait list. So oh. even if, you know, even if you wanted to get into to these programs and most of them were very bare bones, like literally just folding tables and chairs and it was just kind of depressing. And I just really thought, you know, my mother and my family's parents they just deserve better than something like this and I just thought is it something that could could be done I knew Bennett would be the one to be able to tell me if it's something that could be done mm-hmm. or not done so. so Bennett can you kind of fast forward and kind of tell us where things are now yeah well actually if I, if I okay. can talk a little bit more about sure. what, when we're doing absolutely our whole feasibility study and just doing our homework and trying to figure out whether right. or not this made sense so um, I, I ended up visiting maybe about 20, 30 of these. Uh, so I, actually, let me rewind a little bit. When I was at that conference, what I found out was... Sorry, when was the conference again? This was two years ago that I went, but it's once a year. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's a conference for all types of uh, adult day services. And um, about 500 people or so uh, attended that particular year. And one thing that I learned was that each state did each state handles everything differently. So, for example, like the state of Michigan, there's no regulation. There's there's no licensing. And so the state of California and I would say maybe if I had to guess about 70 percent of the other states um, separate out adult day services between medical and social uses. And in the state of California, about, I would say, if I had to guess, 90 to 95% do the medical version, because that's the only way you get Medicaid reimbursement. In the state of California, we call it Medi-Cal. Mm-hmm. And there's, some, there's a lot of structural problems with the whole system. Uh, and, and it was very noticeable when I started visiting these things. So the first thing I noticed, as David was mentioning, it's, it, does, it doesn't look that great. You walk in and it looks like a high school cafeteria with folding tables and chairs and everyone's cramming a bunch of people into a small facility and they're just playing bingo all day long. And I noticed uh, that they ended up closing. They all closed around like 1.30 or 2 p.m. And I thought that was kind of odd. So I started looking at the whole Medicaid policy and Medicaid reimburses $76 per day per person. Now, in order to get that reimbursement, all you need to do is serve, um, among other things, you need to serve two and a half meals. So they serve breakfast, then a snack, then they uh, then lunch, and then they close because the largest operating expense is labor. The three largest operating expenses: labor, then rent, then food. 
And so by closing up early, you save, but it's, it's not, it's not their fault, right? I mean, it's like Medicaid will not reimburse them any more money. So, um, unless you have other resources. Yeah. And so, so I'm thinking though, but that it's not, it's not really a, a, a care business. It's more of like a Medicaid reimbursement business. And so if they, if you want, um, to, treat people with dignity and care for them the entire day and try to provide a solution for um, family members who act as caregivers who need to actually work from nine to five as you know your your typical job of an accountant or a dentist or anything where you have to work all day long you can't put your parent in into one of these facilities because they close up shop at two o'clock so what are you going to do right so that's where we thought, okay, there's an opportunity here to go private pay. Um, and so we're not going to go through the Medicaid route and we're going to try to figure out whether the, oh, we can um, provide a solution for the, um, and, and they, they show that 75% of the people actually don't qualify for Medicaid. So the middle income people who do not qualify for Medicaid, they don't really have an, a, a cost effective solution unless they're willing to spend uh, four to $5,000 a month sticking their parents into assisted living. Wow. So I, I understand that some base in your club is, is going to be opening soon. Yes, um, we're going to be opening in a month. Right. So can you tell us about the location and whether there's, you know, registration's already begun? Um, what, where? Sure. So <laughs> it's it's right in the heart of Koreatown. It's right. on Olympic Boulevard near Normandy. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, nearest cross street is actually uh, uh, Kingsley and uh, Ardmore. Mm-hmm. Um, we we've taken eight thousand square foot from uh, the retail uh, floor of a an apartment complex that was just built. So it's a brand new building, um, and we're doing the build out in a very um, upscale fashion right now. So uh, we're hoping to be open in in a month or so. And we've intentionally decided to um, wait until we do the marketing, until we get a little bit closer to the opening date, just because we want to be able to give tours to people. Right Right now, what we say is uh, that it's hard for people to understand what we really are, just Mm -hmm. because it doesn't exist. So I always give the example of when um, Walt Disney decided to to open up Disneyland. When he did that, um, theme parks in general, I mean, there there were no true theme parks. They were just amusement parks. And amusement parks were typically like county fairs. There were were a lot of crime, you know, they were dirty. And so when Walt Disney said that, we're gonna open up something different. um, It was hard for people to understand what what it is. And so what we're kind of faced with that same challenge where we're trying to do something much more different than what exists today. And so in order for people to understand what we are, I think we really need to tour them through the space, mm-hmm. the physical space, because it's hard to do with just renderings or sketches right. or just pictures of what the furniture is going to be. It's like. hard to convey look and feel of something without actually right. showing it to you. And the service component of it right, as well. Right, right. Yeah, I was intrigued to see that you're going to have bilingual staff, which I think is so important. Yeah. Uh, because one of the things that, you know, my parents deal with, for example, is is the language barrier. And though they've lived in this country for 30 years, it's still... You know, they still like reading, you know, Korean newspaper, you know, and watching Korean news. And, and, 
you know, there is this sense of loneliness that prevails when you don't feel like you can communicate with the outside world and, you know, you become more drawn inward, I suppose. And so, you know, the community that, that you'd be creating there not only combats that sense of loneliness, but it also gives people freedom to interact and, and get the services they need because they can speak in Korean as much as English. So that's really great. Uh, how many um, seniors can you accommodate? We, our capacity is 120. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is just like an all-day program. Yeah. Right. right. Correct. So we're going to be open up uh, from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Yeah. To your point earlier about, you know, yeah, work schedule. Like, yeah, I mean, someone like me or so, you, like right, we can right. actually work and also pick yeah. them up or... Yeah. And yeah. we have a completely different in- incentive than um, a lot of these uh, Medicaid facilities that are getting a flat fee, a flat reimbursement of $76, right? So for them, the only way that they can um, make a profit is to cut expenses because they're not, they're never going to get more than $76 per person. For us, um, we need to make sure that we create a great experience because eventually people will be paying, uh, be willing to pay for a better experience. So for us, it's not about thinking about cost savings, but creating an environment where um, people feel like they're comfortable and they're taken care of and then and that they're entertained as well. Mm. What a great interview, Jessica, so far. I'm taking away two important points from your uh, talk with David and Bennett. I'm surprised that there's a lack of resource guide for services provided for adult senior care program. I would imagine there's something available like that, but I'm surprised there's nothing like that. And two, really the importance of how we need to better educate not only our officials, but mainstream community about the needs, the health needs of our Korean American community. How about you, Jess? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's right. You know, on the point you just made on the, you know, lack of, um, you know, part of it, of course, is that the community we're trying to reach, the elderly, often don't speak English and the services they use, uh, like adult, you know, senior daycare centers, they don't have websites. And so <laughs> there's a data, you know, desert uh, that one enters, I suppose, you know, in this context. Um, but on the broader, you know, point that I think Dr. Kim was making on our community's um, healthcare needs and how we improve healthcare outcomes for Korean Americans by educating ourselves on the resources available, which is exactly why the Korean American Health Coalition started. You know, I think that's such an important point uh, because I can't, for example, think of a guide or resource guide that I would give my parents or myself <laughs> to, you know, understand what sort of uh, hospital and other cares are available for Korean Americans and people for whom English is not their first language. So I think uh, Dr. Kim's organization, Korean American Health Coalition, really provides an important tool uh, for us. Well, Jess, I look forward to the next part of this interview. I think there's an important conversation about the culture of preventative care in the Korean American community. I found it particularly insightful. I'm excited to hear uh, your conversation uh, with the two of them. So let's get right back to our interview. So I'd like to um, kind of look and visualize um, a future, you know, to your point that doesn't exist right now, but that I believe, um, you know, we should strive for, which is 
uh, a world in which you know the initiatives and things you're doing here in LA are seen in other major cities with large Korean American populations, and that policymakers who make decisions on behalf of our community are sensitive and educated on these matters. And so, what do you think are um, you know ways that we can get there? Is it more of national convenings, you know, where we really learn from each other. Um, how do we support more people like you who are doing this type of work in, in a city as large as L.A., um, you know, where Korean Americans are obviously um, a huge part of, of society? So, you know, let, let's kind of imagine what that future might be. Do you have any thoughts, David? I want to start with you and then hear from Bennett. Um, well, if we had to construct something from scratch, in a sense, or maybe not from scratch, but you know, what doesn't exist. Um, I mean, if I look at the way modeling for, let's say, women's health care is, because I'm an OBGYN doctor, um, there's a national organization and they help educate, lobby, take positions. Um, and then they have sort of the resources and the guides and the infrastructure and the staff. And then that's brought to the state level. And each state's a little bit different on their own state laws and their own needs. But then the state sort of uh, membership, because the national membership's broken up into different districts, then they go ahead and, and take that. And then they're able to execute, roll that out at more of a state level. And then there's uh, more local sections, they're called. Um, and then those those officers can then execute at that level. So I think, you know, some of the barriers, especially with healthcare professionals, is they just wouldn't even, they, they generally have an idea of what we need to do. Like if you talk to any Korean American physicians and their specialty, they know exactly what needs to be done um, in terms of trying to improve outcomes for Korean Americans relative to their medical specialty. But that's a really, that's very different than, okay, well, there's now marketing and PR and now there's, you know, connecting and communicating with, you know, political leaders and then there's a strategy and there's a position. And so all that stuff is, you know, that happens, I think, in the U.S. for a lot of important issues and important, you know, for different organizations that are trying to push uh, what they want to see changed. I just think that we're very fragmented. Mm -hmm. um, and then the people that are, are, are busy. So mm -hmm. I think a lot of the nonprofit leaders that do this or political leaders that do this, they don't necessarily know the healthcare issues completely. And the healthcare people don't have the expertise nor the time to do the like grassroots level, like, I guess, development and strategies and the platforms. Mm -hmm. So... Um, on the senior side, whether it's senior housing or senior care, for the past several decades, there's been a disagreement as to whether it's medical or hospitality, whether it's healthcare or it's hospitality. And the, of course, all the people who are the providers, they want to say it's, there's some element of healthcare to it. But a lot of the policymakers don't want to be uh, using tax, taxpayers' money to fund um, things like assisted living, for example. And so whether it's housing or daycare, um, if you're taking care of somebody, it, it, is that really considered hospitality or healthcare, right? And so um, if you look at the different uh, types of care that's being provided, in some cases, it's easy um, to label like uh, skilled nursing is definitely considered healthcare. 
Now, things like memory care, where it deals with dementia, Alzheimer's, that's actually classified in most states under assisted living. You get the same type of licensing as assisted living. So when you're taking care of somebody who has memory care issues, um, Alzheimer's, dementia, that's actually, in for the most part, considered um, not reimbursable by Medicare or Medicaid. In it, well, I don't want to say Medicaid, but it, Medicare in many situations. And so people look at that as just providing um, like oversight for a senior. And so there's this huge push from the on the policy side. I think the whole industry has been trying to lobby Washington in terms of trying to figure this thing out because studies have shown that um, assisted living and daycare do provide much more health benefits than uh, than people have originally thought. And it extends people's lives and it would reduce a lot of the other insurance costs. Um, is there any one particular issue that kind of keeps you up at night? <laughs> like something that you fear is coming, you know, that could disproportionately affect Korean Americans. Maybe they are self-insured, for example, or, you know, because they're self-employed, excuse me. Um, and so they are um, uh, not getting health insurance um, or, you know, kind of taking, in, uh, taking off your OBGYN hat, but really looking sort of at the macro level. You know, when you think about health policy and health insurance, um, you know, uh, access to healthcare. Um, is there anything in particular, David, that stands out as yeah. something we should be watching closely? Yeah, and I think it's unique to Korean Americans as opposed to, let's say, Koreans in Korea. And I, I think a lot of it is the lack of, I don't know what it is, the lack of engagement or interest in um, preventative health like screenings. So uh, for instance, like in Korea, they're much better for screening for gastric cancer, um, for breast cancer other things than they are here. And there's just something about the Korean, I'm just, this from my own personal experience, you know, we immigrated here in 1971. There's something about the Koreans that came over in the 70s and 80s that have a different mindset. Uh, the ones that are still in Korea, the government, once they sort of rolled out more of a national healthcare system by I don't know, 1999 or something like that, um, they really had a push for preventive healthcare. So there was just a big campaign and, and you know, I think a lot of people get pretty good healthcare. I think the Korean immigrants that have come over, one, they weren't getting health insurance. They just spend cash money when they had a problem or go back to Korea for healthcare if they need it. Um, but there is sort of this mentality that I get a sense from just being in the you know, healthcare field and being involved with Korean American health um, that uh, in our community, especially amongst the immigrants, there's not an idea of preventative screening and preventive care. There's more of an idea of there's nothing wrong until you can see there's something wrong and then you get the care. But by that time, uh, you've kind of missed the boat. So I think it's no accident that in the U.S., Korean Americans amongst Asian groups have like the lowest breast cancer screening, cervical cancer screening, lung cancer screening. I mean, pretty much everything, lowest rates of HIV vaccination. These are all things that can have a huge preventative impact um, in terms of future disease burden. So, so there's a cultural element, something that's preventing like our parents' generation. It's cultural and specific to the Korean Americans that immigrated around that time period. Because if you 
if you talk to Koreans in Korea, I feel like it's a little bit different. They're just, there's something about the government having kind of done the public relations and the marketing and telling everyone they need to get their screening and, and they get it done. But here in the U.S., I think it's just different. Like the Koreans wait till there's something noticeably wrong and then they go ahead and they get some sort of medical attention. Someone who's in the CK uh, membership, uh, Dr. Lucy Nam of uh, Inova Fairfax Hospital in Virginia. That's where talks I trained. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I trained at George Washington, but we spent a lot of time at Nova Fairfax. Right. Now. And Dr. Nam has talked a lot about gastric cancer in particular as something yeah. that, you know, if you if you detect it earlier, right. that you have a higher chance of, you know, um, yeah. survival and that this is uh, something that... For a variety of reasons that I think it'd be fascinating for her to maybe tease out in another episode uh, where we're just not detecting it soon enough. Yeah, well, it's, and this, it's not just that. I think, you know, gastric cancer is so uncommon in the U.S. It just happens to be very high in Japanese and Koreans. So insurance usually doesn't cover endoscopy for screening, which is, you know, you put a camera down your throat and look inside. So in, in Korea, you get screened every two years automatically. But in the U.S., the insurance won't pay for it because it's just not something that pops up. I mean, most general surgeons can't. I would say can't. I would say most general surgeons don't have experience to do those surgeries either. And so it's just not that common. But it is common, more common. And actually, I think Koreans have the highest prevalence of, of any ethnic group there is. So right. um, that's why of my Korean patients, I say anytime you have any kind of stomach pain, just tell your primary care doctor you have it, you want endoscopy. Because mm. then that's a little bit more likely to trigger that the insurance will cover it. But, you know, in Korea, they actually routinely will screen you and they'll just do it every two years. And that's why they have much better survival rates for gastric cancer than we do. Mm -hmm. Bennett, um, can, can you talk a little bit about ways in which your work, you know, intersects with healthcare? And, you know, obviously we're talking about an older population where things like taking their medicine or going, you know, access to hospital are so important. But how do you think about healthcare and how uh, that affects perhaps Korean-Americans that you deal with? Well, my, my experience before was more on the real estate side. So mm -hmm. this is actually the first time I'm actually delving into the operations of the business. Mm -hmm. um, and one of my concerns um, is that we're trying to understand the idiosyncrasies of Korean culture when it comes to how people deal with medical issues and their parents and senior. Um, one concern that I have in, 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 in doing all this, like we're, we're, people were asking, hey, can you do focus groups to get a better understanding? Can you do market research? A lot of this, it's, it's still unclear in terms of what, what the data says, right? So for example, um, whether or not there's enough demand for something like this. Uh, we know that we can interpolate certain data that um, there's definitely demand for the free stuff, right? When, when I say free, I mean that Medicaid pays for it. And then there's demand for the private pay. We know for a fact that um, almost all of the middle income assisted living facilities within a, call it a two mile radius, they're full with a wait list. So we know that there, people are willing to pay that amount. So in between, the idea is, can, can we get people, or is there demand for people who would pay a fraction of the price of assisted living 
Um, but you just don't get a bed and you need to figure out that solution, whether or not you sleep with a family member or we can think about things like remote monitoring. Um, other things in terms of Korean behaviors, specific to the Korean culture that um, we're, we're trying to get a better handle is I mentioned um, uh, the pricing to a couple people and the pricing right now, it starts at roughly around, uh, it starts at $59 a day and it scales up. Um, different packages you can buy but if you don't factor in on uh, the weekends um then it comes to roughly around 1500 bucks a month and i'll say 1500 bucks so a month. 1500 mm-hmm. and you know people mention oh it's just like kind of like a same price as um child care but what a lot of my korean friends have told me is that korean families are willing to invest a ton of money um to their kids but not necessarily the parents. And it's kind of a sad state of our society, but um, they think of their kids as an investment, that whatever dollars that they put into it, it'll eventually reap the rewards of a better family. Um, they'll be happier, but they're almost giving up on their parents because they're they're thinking of their parents as on their way out. And that's just kind of, you know, what we're trying to change is we're trying to change that behavior of it's time to reward our parents, you know, it's time to reward that generation for making all the sacrifices that, you know, for us to live. Right. This is great. Well, I learned so much in this brief conversation. Thank you so much. Um, I want to end by asking both of you if you have any parting thoughts or advice that you can give to CKA listeners, as well as, um, you know, non-health professionals who find all this really interesting and, and uh, personally meaningful, what can we do to, you know, be better informed and to, um, you know, play a more active role in the solutions? Well, CKA has a lot of, I think, very um, important, powerful members. Um, for whatever reason, there just hasn't been an, in- I wouldn't say interest, but there just, there just hasn't been a commitment to healthcare and in any of the um, conferences, meetings, and it's it's not that I think people are not interested. It's just not as familiar to people who are more business lawyers, um, political like advocates. There's just not something that they're used to. And there are doctors, but they're not. Certainly, we're not a majority in the group. So I think that incorporating somehow some sort of health policy is a starting point. And also, what would be great, I think, for any organization, including the coalition, which you know, we've put together, we haven't always been great at executing it is, it's just having an overall strategic plan that like, you know, in five years, what it's like one or two or three things we would like to see happen. And if that's the case, if five years from now, we say that it's going to be done, it's hands down done, it's going to be taken for granted. What did we have to do today, five years earlier to start moving towards that goal? You know, I, I would say just, just trying to get the community uh, educate in terms of what the options are, right? Because uh, in terms of like senior care, um, people just don't think about it until they actually need it. Um, and so what we're seeing is that by the time people need to figure out a solution, um, they're very emotional. Um, they haven't planned in advance, uh, both financially and strategically in thinking about how the whole family is going to be uh, affected. So um, if anything, I think one thing that we would want to do is try to get uh, people to 
understand what the consequences are um, and understand what the potential solutions are. Right. You know, that's a very good point. I, I, you know, we have a resource guide, which is a starting point, but when people have children, they're planning out their 529, you know, investment for college, yeah. their preschool, you know, yeah. their nanny, preschools, you know, private school, whatever, or public school are you going to be. It's almost interesting if they're, if the coalition could work on a staged kit of what happens with each sort of milestone is just naturally happens as our parents get older. You know, right. what what would be the next steps? What would the preparation and the groundwork you would lay for that, for each of those steps, the way that is out there for raising your children? The thing is, it's, yeah. it's kind of fun to think about your kid's future, but it's right. sad yeah. to think about your Right. Parents. That's exactly right. You don't want to think about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And how yeah. they will be right. when they're 80, right. when they're right. 90. Right. right. You don't want to think about so, those things. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Well, this was fascinating. I wish we had more time, but uh, I hope this is the beginning of uh, more uh, educating uh, and also learning uh, about uh, these issues that affect every single one of us who have parents or care about their health <laughs> and care about how Korean Americans um, in this country could better be informed uh, to, uh, to have more resources uh, guided for them. So this was Dr. David Kim of Cedars-Sinai Medical Group and UCLA and also the founder of Korean American Health Coalition, and Bennett Kim, who is not yet a CKA member, <laughs> but is well known for, to most of us. <laughs> he is managing principal at Big Rock Partners and uh, chief executive officer of Sun Bay Senior Club. Thank you both for joining me today. Great, thank, thank you. you. Well, Jess, I think that was a very poignant point, uh, how this uh, interview ended, reminding us how it's so easy and fun to think about our kids' future. But when we think about our parents and their future, especially in their uh, as they get older and older, um, we don't think about them as much and as they're getting into their 80s and 90s. And so I think uh, that's an important point to end this interview, where we need to probably think more about our parents and their future. Yes, I think, you know, Korean American elderly, our parents' generation and, and folks who are becoming older, you know, we forget their contributions and how they helped us, um, you know, their kids um, and their grandchildren get to where they are. And um, I think there's so much more we can do to honor their contributions and sacrifice. So I'm, I'm really pleased that we were able to cover such wide ranging uh, topics during this interview. In our next episode, we will be interviewing Sylvia Kim with whom I dive into this issue of investing in our community. Sylvia is the Chief Innovation Officer of the Asian Pacific Community Fund and is spearheading a major national philanthropic initiative from Southern California. We hope you subscribe uh, to our uh, on our website for this podcast, or you can subscribe on uh, any of the channels that you get your podcast from, from Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. And we want to thank our producer, Kevin Koo, for all his help in making our podcast uh, series possible. And we look forward to your tuning in in two weeks for our next episode. Thank you. 
Thank you for tuning into the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Head over to councilka.org for the show notes of this episode and see exciting upcoming programs at CKA. That's councilka.org.